Hello everyone and welcome back to Industry Perspectives. I'm your host Ainsley Bowden and tonight I'm talking with Chris Johnston. Now Chris runs secondplayer.net. He has also hosted the Player One podcast since about 2006. So he's been covering the industry a long time. He also worked at a little publication called Electronic Gaming Monthly, EGM, which we grew up with many in our era and uh, was a staple of our childhood. So I've been looking forward to speaking with Chris about his perspective on the industry, modern gaming coverage, some uh, some history and some fun stories that he can tell given his experience. So let's go ahead and get into it. All right, and we are live with Chris Johnston, who I will refer to as CJ for the rest of the episode. How you doing, man? I'm doing well, Ainsley. How are you? I am very well, very well. Been looking forward to this. I uh, had the f- fortune to meet you through uh, those cast of characters we know too well, and uh, right. Joe and Joe and Luke. And uh, but uh, you know, once we started talking and kind of learn a little bit about your history with gaming and uh, your work kind of across the industry, I was really fascinated because um, it, it touches on things that I grew up with, which is crazy to me. So I'm um, really looking forward to this conversation. Um, and you've been doing this a long time. Uh, too long. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it and can't get away from it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. Absolutely. So, um, we'll get into it. Um, let's, uh, so l- for the people who don't know you, um, mm. you've got a, a hell of a resume here. So I'm trying to figure out where to start, which is, uh, you know, let's, let's start with you're the host of the player one podcast. And I started doing some digging on that and wow, uh, it's been around a long time, huh? Yeah, we started podcasting in 2006, which is crazy. Yeah, uh, to me thinking about it, because I mean, <laughs> I, you have to be one of the kind of oldest ga- regular gaming podcasts out there. You have to be. Yeah, we're probably one of the older ones that are still going. Yeah, the Cadcast was before us, and then uh, there are a couple others that are still kicking around. Gamertag Radio, I think, was around sure. to, uh, around that time. But yeah, uh, 15 years coming up this year. That's a long time to be doing anything. And we've only missed like one or two weeks in our uh, 15 year run. So, wow, it's crazy. Yeah, that is amazing. That is yeah. amazing. So very cool there. Um, and then I should offer you congratulations because uh, I noticed that uh, you just got a new career role, right? I did. Yeah, I'm working uh, freelance with Enhance Experience and uh, that's been a fun opportunity. So looking forward to doing stuff there with them. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're doing uh, user experience, right? Or UE, which right. is, um, and if you're not familiar with enhance for the, for the viewers here is that they, but they worked on a uh, res infinite and Tetris effect connected, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. That company. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. So yeah. Who, yeah. What, uh, you know, one of the things I was really looking forward to in this conversation is just, uh, kind of insight into some of the things that go on, at various aspects of your kind of experience here, because I feel a lot of people who talk and live this stuff on a daily basis, even those ones, a lot of them who do podcasts or shows or articles, what have you, they they still don't really have any experience in the industry, right? They're covering it from an outside perspective. Yeah. And so I always find I, one of the things I really enjoy probably is just the geek in me, I guess, is speaking with people who, have done things within the industry so you can learn the true experience of what it's like. So for for this new role where you're director of user experience at Enhance, 
what does that entail? Like, what are you actually doing for Enhance? Um, and what is expected of you, I should say? <laughs> well, I, I don't want to talk about what I'm doing at Enhance specifically, okay. but I can talk about what I have done in the industry previously. Uh, my Before this, my, uh, my regular gig was Adult Swim Games, and I was yes. at that company for 11 years. Okay, from 2007 uh, onward. So similar role or something completely different? It's similar. Yeah, it's similar in that at Adult Swim, it was a very small team and everybody kind of doing a little bit of everything. And for me, as we started doing more and more games there, I started focusing on, um, you know, things like game feel, uh, difficulty ramp. Okay. things like that in in the games and we'd have you know uh testers play and i'd play games and we'd have uh some sort of rudimentary analytics on a lot of the mobile games that we did sure. and um really like suggest things and sort of uh gut feel sort of give our comments uh to developers so um you know that's very it's sort of what a user experience director would do. Um, so I'm continuing that sort of work. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. <coughs> oh, excuse me. So I think, um, you know, one of the things uh, we, well, let's pin that for a second. Cause I, I want to come back to that and get and answer some questions of you. Sure. From your perspective there. Cause I think that will be good, <coughs> but you're also involved in uh, second player, right? Which highlights, yeah gaming podcast. Um, and so uh, I just wanted to kind of call out all the things that you're currently doing, because I think it's important for that context, which seems like a lot, by the way, as well. It's kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let, let's go ahead and, and go further back then, uh, going way back. So when you were first kind of growing up, and we mm-hmm. just joked about prior to going live, that you and I are nearly the same age, uh, only a few months apart. That's right. Um, so for the the season gamers in the house, um, what what got you originally into gaming? What what kind of fascinated you with that? Was it very early in your life, like some of us, or was it not till later? And you know what was it? Oh, it was very early. Okay. Yeah, um, I loved video games from a pretty early age. Uh, you know, I was a child of the '80s, and yeah. at that time when I was growing up. We had a lot of birthday parties at Chuck E. Cheese or Showbiz Pizza in the Midwest. <laughs> Showbiz, yeah. <laughs> so played a lot of arcade games. And uh, my family used to go to this ice cream parlor called the Purple Cow uh, in Chicago. And nice. they had a bunch of arcade games. And they had some of the best ones there. They had uh, Popeye, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, and the Star Wars sort of sit-down Atari game. And uh, Crystal Castles as well. And so... That's like that sort of like weekend family outing to get ice cream became I'm going to also get to play some video games. And (laughs) that was a pretty uh, fantastic thing. I loved uh, playing those games. And somebody who was playing Crystal Castles actually showed me a level skip trick in that game where you go from level one to like level 30 or something. And I was like, I oh my god, I know this secret thing. This is amazing, like, <laughs> and I became sort of fascinated with just games and gameplay from from there. Yeah. So it was right around, 
you know, when the crash happened. So yeah, my family didn't have a home video game system during the Atari time, but when the crash happened, um, we we bought an Odyssey two for okay. like nothing. There was it was fire sale pricing, and it was like five dollars per game or something like that. It was super cheap, and uh, so. I played a lot of Casey Munchkin and Pickaxe Pete and like these sort of knockoff games at home and, uh, but loved them all the same. Right. And, uh, then of course the NES appeared, yes. uh, a few years later. And I remember seeing Super Mario Brothers for the first time at a friend's house and just became enthralled <laughs> with Super Mario Brothers yep. and, uh, begged, my parents, as so many kids of that era did, yeah. uh, to get an NES and to get Super Mario Brothers so I could play it at my house instead of having to like come up with excuses to go over to my friend Andy's <laughs> house and play. Yeah, very, very similar. Uh, it's kind of funny, actually. And it, it, it feels like... I've, so I've had this conversation with a lot of people of our, our era. And it, it's I, I guess it's not shocking because it was such a cultural phenomenon. But yeah. Um, you know, it is striking how many people have very, very similar stories in this vein. Like I, I was the same thing. Love the arcades. Uh, we did have an Atari and it, it, the quality of the games didn't really matter as a kid, you know, and brand That's new video true. games. It was just you, you're controlling something on the screen and it's the best thing ever. Exactly. Um, and then when I saw I went to a friend's house, very same thing, had a sleepover and he had just gotten the NES with Super Mario and we played it all night. Um, and I just, that, that game completely changed my perspective. Now I never had an NES as a kid. I, my mom was, uh, didn't have a lot of money. So I got a Sega master system the following year. Ah, okay. um, so I grew up a Sega kid, but yeah, I mean the, the impact that super Mario brothers had, I think on kids around our age is just, it cannot be overstated. Immense. Yeah. yeah. It brought a lot of people together too. Like, you know, people you wouldn't normally hang out with. They have an NES, so they're going to be playing right. Punch Out or whatever, and you, suddenly you're hanging out because you want to play games. Exactly. That's <laughs> kind of when, I, I, at least I feel, maybe it's just biased for my history. It's kind of when that whole kind of gamer geek culture began, uh, yeah. when they really kind of started forming groups because of that, right? And and no totally. one else that had paid attention to the NES or anything really cared. It was a yeah. new thing that just the geeks did. Um, <laughs> it's true. But uh, yeah, yeah, great days. Uh, so where'd you go from there then? So uh, did you have kind of the typical, did you, let me ask it this way. Did you always stay into gaming or was there a period of life where you kind of fell off in your teen twenties and then came back or were you just, that was it. You were always into it from that point on. Always into it from that point on Okay. <laughs> awesome. with, with maybe like a, uh, probably a six month period in the early two thousands when I took a break from games entirely and then came back. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's, that's so. nothing really in the scope of it, right? <laughs> the scope of it, yeah. That ain't nothing. No, but. no. So did you have a similar kind of arc as many of us then you kind of went through all the console generations playing and buying as much as you could, you know? Um, and did you ever get into PC? Was that a thing for you? Uh, never got into PC gaming. I think, okay. uh, until very recently sure uh you know in the 80s 90s you know there was just a lot of technical 
stuff that came with gaming on PC. Like, it's true. It's a lot harder. You know, what type of sound card do you have? And what type of <laughs> graphics card do you have? And is your monitor a specific, like, is it EGA, SVGA, VGA? Like, what is it? What exactly? So, like, that whole thing just went over my head. Like, I just don't okay. like a lot of that technical cruft. So, I stayed a console kid, uh, even though... I did have a computer at home, but we had an Apple II GS, and it sure. didn't really play a whole <laughs> lot of games. <laughs> yeah, no, it had some but, uh, learning games, and uh, it's yeah. monochrome color. That's about it. Exactly, Oregon Trail and Math Blaster, and that's yeah, exactly it. <laughs> math Math Blasters was exactly what I was thinking of. That's funny. Yeah, man. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what? What? Uh, I'll just throw this out there. Then, what's your favorite game from our childhood? Mm. Do you have favorite one? Favorite game from our childhood. I'm going to say Super Mario Brothers 2. Wow. That's a rare pick, I would say. A rare pick. Yeah, I know. <laughs> out, of all, out of everything, you know, 2 is usually the, uh, the odd uh, one insert out. phrase here. You know, the one that's the exception. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I at the time, we didn't know. I didn't know that it wasn't actually like designed to be a Mario game or anything. I just accepted it as... Right. The next Mario, and it still like blew me away. I remember at the time, like before it came out, Nickelodeon had this kids' news show, and they were going to have a segment on Super Mario Brothers two. So I recorded it on a VHS tape, and I'm a, I wore out the tape watching that back, like <laughs> until the game came out. It's like I can't believe like, I'm going to be playing this soon. I think I even like grabbed the NES controller and like mimed as if I was playing it while <laughs> all the footage was running on screen. It's like great. It's just a very exciting game, in part because the graphics looked so different from Super Mario Brothers. They it looked did. like a cartoon suddenly. And uh, I just love how that game plays, even though it's very different from every Mario game after it. Uh, it just feels original and fresh and. I would love to see Nintendo go back to that style, that sort of rule set. And they've stopped just short of doing that in Super Mario Maker 2. Mm. Um, but I'd love to see them revisit that style. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. It's, I like when um, people have kind of unique picks like that I don't expect. Because, um, yeah. you know, I hear a lot of kind of the usual, right? Uh, obviously, Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. had the impact on us and then usually you hear it's either three or mario world and and typically yeah. even myself i pick mario world um but that's cool very cool yeah um so yeah so uh the other thing we haven't touched on yet and and the thing that really fascinated me when we first uh talked online when we played sea of thieves i think it was that's right um, yeah was um that you worked at egm I did. Um, so Electronic Gaming Monthly, for those younger listeners who may not know what the hell we're talking about, uh, was a, <laughs> was a uh, uh, was kind of the gaming magazine or one of the top gaming magazines for a very long time. Um, yeah. In fact, I still have some EGMs um, that I've had for 20 plus years, you know, maybe 30, who knows. <laughs> but um, so you've talked about, you know, obviously being a gamer and through uh, through your life then. So when was that your first video game job or how did you take the love of games into an actual kind of job at that point? And what, how old were you? 
Well, um, there are a couple of interesting things with this. So yeah, go for I lived it. in the Midwest in the Chicago area, and that's where right. EGM was published. And there were a couple different video game companies around the area, too. Um, and I always wanted to get into making video games. I thought that would be a really fun job, but mm. I'm terrible at math and programming. Like, can't <laughs> can't do it. Uh, I'm not an artist in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, you're narrow, narrowing your options here. Narrowing the <laughs> options, exactly. So it, I started thinking about, like, well, what can I possibly do to like get in on on gaming? Um, and I, in 1991, there was an article in Video Games and Computer Entertainment Magazine that uh, a monthly column that was like one page long that highlighted um, newsletters or like fanzines that other gamers were making and publishing themselves. And it's just like Xeroxed, you know, paper, maybe typeset on a word processing oh, okay. program yeah, yeah. or like a desktop publishing thing and then distributed uh, through the mail. And I read that and I was like, well, I can write. You know, like I read a lot of video game magazines and I'm very familiar with their style of writing. Like maybe this is a thing I could do. So I was 14 at the time and I just started doing a zine and like I sent away for some that other people had been doing and, uh, you know, started up my own and um, did that for a couple of years. And uh, at the same time, I also like took a, some kind of summer class at the local uh, community cable, like cable access channel. Okay. Uh, when I was fourteen, and um, I always wanted to go to CES, you know, the Consumer yeah. Electronics Show, and they used to hold two of those a year. One was in Vegas in the winter, and then the other was in the summer in Chicago, where I happened to live. <laughs> so. Uh, in 91, after I had taken this um, community broad public access channel class, I was like, maybe I can like pitch them on a, hey, I'll go and bring my camp, my family's camcorder and I'll record some footage at this show and we can edit it together and put, put it on uh, cable access. And they were like, okay, let's do that. So I got a press pass, a media badge to go to the Summer Consumer Electronics Show in 1991 and record uh, the experience on my family's camcorder. <laughs> so I went there to CES with my dad. He drove me down to McCormick Place in Chicago and we went to the CES show and they have signs everywhere like no one under 18 is allowed in, blah, 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 blah which they do at E3 as well. Yeah. And I was like a six foot three, 14 year old. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I had no problem. Nobody even questioned nice. at all. And then I had this media badge, which said I worked for the, uh, the local cable access channel and uh, yeah, got to, be at the 1991 summer CES, which if you remember, was a very pivotal CES for Sega and Nintendo. That was the one where they showed off Sonic the Hedgehog for the first time. Okay. And that's the one that's written about in console wars as, you know, Kalinsky and Al Nilsson, like making flyers of the price for the Sega Genesis, like overnight, like this is a very pivotal 
<laughs> sort of show that I happened to get into when I was 14 years old. Yeah, because the Super Nintendo at the time was coming. It was, and that was the first show. For, that was the debut yes. of the Super Nintendo in the U.S. too. Yep. And it was just amazing. So I got to that show and, uh, you know, did a little segment for cable access and then also started writing about that in my zine. So I wrote about video games just in this newsletter and I would send issues to EGM and GamePro and like all the big magazines, just like not really ex not expecting anything out of it, just like being proud of this thing that I wrote in here, check this out, like yeah. not expecting anything at all. And then uh, Steve Harris, the editor in chief of EGM called me up nice one day and uh, we, we talked about games and we talked about video game magazines and stuff, but I was, uh, I was probably like 16 by that I was that just going to ask. You're very young here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then when I turned 17 that summer, so I was a soft between my uh, junior and senior year of high school, I w got a job at EGM for the summer. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That was my first like professional video game job, but sure. I worked uh, at Babbage's. Yeah, I, I remember Babbage's. Yeah, when I uh, was sixteen, so I worked at Babbage's uh, for a while. I had a friend that had a job there, and I interviewed and worked there as well. So that okay. was a lot of fun. Again, for those listening who may not know what we're talking about, Babbage's was uh, before GameStop took over all the retail space. Uh, you had right. stores like Babbage's, uh, Electronics Boutique, uh, Walden Software. Uh, you had a bunch of different stores that were pretty similar, really. Uh, Pretty similar. Yeah, this was before the pre-owned software days too. So only yeah. new stuff. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. So then I got a job there uh, in the summer of '94, and it's funny because before all this happened, <laughs> when I was in junior high, which is now like years before this, so I was like a sophomore in junior high, seventh grade. Uh, my English teacher, we had a, we had an assignment to write a business letter. Okay. So I wrote my business letter replying to an ad in the classified section of my local newspaper that was come work at EGM because they were local. They were like two towns over. So in my local paper, they had a one ad in there. <laughs> so I wrote my business letter and then sent it off to EGM. Of course, I didn't say that I was like 13 at the time <laughs> or anything like this. And they replied, they called me up and scheduled an interview. And I did. In fact, I, my mom drove me over there in our station wagon. <laughs> and when I got there, they realized that oh, so there's no way they're like yeah. a 13 year old, whatever. But uh, I still like got to go in the office of EGM. And at the time that was just amazing. Like, sure seeing consoles like the super graphics or the yeah. PC engine, like stuff that I'd only read about in EGM, like being able to see that stuff and then meet some of the people who worked there. It was just like astounding. So that was before all the fanzine stuff even happened. Okay. <laughs> I wow. got to That's visit kind of the office. It is kind of, kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. So, so how long, so you did uh kind of writing, there i mean was there anything mm -hmm. specific or was it kind of a group effort to get the uh, magazine published on a monthly basis when i started there in 94 i was doing the letters section okay i was doing um the arcade section and 
I wrote Quarterman. Did you really? When I was there. Yeah, that was one of the first thing that they had me do on my very first day was write the Quarterman column for the first issue of EGM2, uh, which was a sister publication to EGM. And the, they, they did that so that they could publish twice monthly. <laughs> and it's with the same staff, by the way. So everybody's just working twice as hard. <laughs> oh so uh, writing Quarterman for EGM2 was my first writing for them. And uh, then I became Quarterman uh, in EGM for a couple of months. Hmm. Until I had to go back to school for my senior year, and I didn't want to. St- I didn't want to like leave high school. I wanted to finish out that, yeah. so I started working nights originally, and then that just didn't work out. So I left. <laughs> wow, that is amazing yeah. though, because I remember vividly. Uh, I haven't heard that name or that word in a long time, but I remember vividly reading the Quarterman uh, columns every month. Yeah, it was pretty wild to go from just like you, like reading that column religiously yeah. and putting a lot of weight into it to suddenly writing it. <laughs> <laughs> but I also knew the voice of the of the quote unquote character of Quarterman. So right. it was probably a pretty good fit, really. Man, that's cool, man. Very cool. Yeah. So do you have uh I'll throw this out to you just for kind of a, a fun one if you have anything is what what's the kind of funniest or craziest or any of that kind of memory from working at EGM? Anything kind of stick out in your mind as a funny moment or something that happened while uh while there? Oh wow, there's a lot really. <laughs> uh because I was there from ninety-four. I mean I worked in the summer anyway, up until about 96. And then I started there full time from 96 to 2004. So I was there a long time. Yeah. Um, But that original stint, uh, the thing that sticks out to me the most is I worked there and I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a workstation for quite a while. So I would hop from people's computers and I had like an optical disc with me that I would put all my files on. That That was the only thing I had. And uh, I hopped around, and then they they expanded the office space and um, got, like, the suites that were next door. So EGM basically took up the whole floor uh, of this office building. And when they did that, they didn't put me on the uh, layout. They didn't put me, me on the list because I didn't have I didn't have a cube or a place anyway, so they right. forgot. Oh, my gosh. So then uh, – when they moved, I started working. My desk was two file cabinets and a door on top as the <laughs> desk. And I didn't have a phone and had like a hand-me-down really bad computer and no optical drive. I had to steal an optical drive if I needed to like put something on a disc. So that'll stick out. That sticks out in my mind. Just like trying to work within this like cr- really crazy work environment with a lot of other young people too. Everybody there was super young. I was the youngest there when I worked there, but, but everybody had started when they were around, you know, 16, 17, like for a lot of people, it was a sort of not going on to college sort of job in those days. And the people who published the magazine just kind of found gamers who could take screenshots and write about them. 
yeah. passively, and I fit that bill too. So, well, I mean, it was uh, as, as video games grew, right? Especially in that Sega Nintendo era, uh, 16-bit mm. era, it, it really hadn't been done like that. Yeah, um, the coverage hadn't been there, uh, and of course, you know, it, it's. It seems obvious to us, but you have to remind people there was no internet at that time. There was no YouTube. There was no, you know, yep. this was all just kind of getting things as they came and trying to piece it together for a monthly publication, which is kind of hilarious in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some yeah. of it was just like guessing too. Some right. Of it was guesswork. Like you'd get rough translations of something in Famitsu and then have to write about a game you knew nothing about. Right. Based on looking at the screenshots and, you know, yeah, no internet. So you couldn't check anything. Yeah. It was hard. Yeah. Very different. It's, it's, it's actually hard to even imagine anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, especially like, you know, I, ru I run a site, obviously. Um, and, and, you know, the instant access to anything I need, whether it be information, developer new uh, info, key yeah. art, you know, it's all just there. I have. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's crazy, really. Um, it is. <laughs> and it got better at EGM. Like, uh, there are a couple different eras of EGM as a magazine. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was there at sort of the tail end of the old era. Okay. Uh, in 94. And then from around 96 through 99, um, when, when Sendai Publications sold to Ziff Davis, which is a much larger sort of computer publication, Yep. Uh, publisher, things changed on the magazine for the better, I think, where, you know, we were hiring people who had journalism degrees and sure. sort of had an idea in mind for the content of the magazine that was higher than just the latest screenshots scanned out of Famitsu. Right. And... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think just as a reader and as a fan, like I loved that transition, like, and I loved also being a part of it and being able to, you know, influence some of it and, and write for that because from around issue 100, I was the news editor at EGM. Okay. So, um, I got to do a lot of really cool things as news editor, like interview a lot of famous developers and uh, executives at E3 and, cool. um, you know, do preview and game coverage in a different way than it was being done previously, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, e and E3 back then, again, uh, very different from today. Uh, that was just yeah. a trade show at that time. Right. Um, Although so, plenty of people who worked at GameStop or Babbage's would sneak in of course. to E3 at that time, too. It wasn't, of like, course. only industry people. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, it was every, everyone like us, uh, or I should say me, because you were there, but everyone like, you know, me and, and the guys we grew up with and girls, uh, it was a dream to go to totally. E3. Totally, totally, uh, yeah. You know, and, and still is for many people, it, because we grew up with that was the time of the year. E3 was a celebration. Uh, yeah. And it was a celebration of the thing that we love that we were the outcast for loving, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, very. <laughs> I still think of it that way. Like, even <laughs> after I, you know, was working at Adult Swim Games and had to work at the booth, uh, yeah. you know, like, I still loved it. I still thought it was fantastic. And, you know, yes, I was tired at the end of the day from standing the entire time. And, yeah, yeah. I had a lot of meetings and whatnot. But, I still loved it as a show. Like it's just uh, a great focal point for the year. 
So even when I would hear people on podcasts or on Twitter say like, oh, I can't wait for E3 to be dead. I'd be like, well, you know, what are you talking about? This is a great show. I can understand the fatigue that comes with working the show as part of the industry, but you kind of have to like step back and think about, you know, like you're working in games and it's an important medium. And a lot of people would love to be where we are and yep. doing this for a living. So I never really understood that. Uh, no, me stance. Me neither. <laughs> it's, it feels like a, uh, a selfish stance. Um, yeah. Because uh, I speak to a lot of people overseas. I just uh, part of the Twitter gaming community. My family's overseas. Um, and so I speak to a lot of people, especially in Europe. And, uh, you know, their dream is to go to E3. Um, totally. Because they, yeah. they grew up just like us, kind of reading about it. And over the past however many years, seeing it and just wanting to be there. And, you know, I've only gotten to go two years now. And we had big plans for last year before the pandemic. Yep. Um, but in 18 and 19, um, you know, I, I, I was with some people where it's like, oh, you know, it's it's OK and whatever. And I'm like, I, I just love the spectacle <laughs> of it. You know, I just love being yeah. there. I, I don't care if I get anything special or if I do anything crazy. It's just, you know, being there, being part of it. I just love completely. And at uh, E3 2018, that was the last show that I went to. Um, okay. Sea of Thieves had just come out. Uh-huh. Obviously, I was a big fan of that game. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> From the time it was released, you know, I got to say hello to the uh, the executive producer Joe Neat at yeah, the me show, too. me too, and thank him for making this amazing game. And uh, they had like a panel. Jeff Keeley was doing like a side thing um, where he would Coliseum have different conversations. People. Yes, the Coliseum. Yes. So uh, there was one on Sea of Thieves and I timed it so that it was after all of my meetings and I had a Sea of Thieves t-shirt at the time. And after my meetings were done, I ran into the bathroom at the JW Marriott, changed my shirt into the Sea of Thieves shirt and went to the Coliseum talk about Sea of Thieves. And then afterwards, like met and talked with some members of the development team. I was fanboying out like crazy. (laughs) I think that's one of the best parts, right? Is totally. And I think what people don't realize, and I've actually said this to people is, you know, there are some of those kind of executive types and what have you at the, at the shows that are just there because they have to be. But for the most part, I would say the developers and the people in these companies they're just, they're grown up fans as well. Yeah. Um, and, and when you talk to them, it's like two kids just chatting about video games. Even Completely. these people you see on stage and you think to yourself, oh my God, I'll never get to talk to that guy, you yeah. know? And then you meet them and it's, it's like this. You're just <laughs> chatting about games. Exactly. You know, um, it's just, they just happen to be in a job that puts them there, you know? That's um, right. But I think that's one of the best parts. I've got so many pictures and, conversations I've had with people I never would thought that I would have met, you know, and people who've made games that I grew up with, you know, I met, uh, yeah. in 2019, I met, um, um, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Mortal Kombat's creator. Um, Ed Boon. Ed Boon. Thank you. Good Lord. That's terrible. I can't <laughs> believe I blanked on his name, but I <laughs> ran into Ed Boon and got a picture with him. I'm like, man, you know, I used to play, I played, tournaments in mk1 and mk2 is a huge part of my life yeah and so to just stand there and just chat with them for a second was amazing you know totally Um, yeah yeah the crazy thing about having worked in the industry since you know 
regularly since 96 yeah. is a lot of people that I used to work with or ran into at press junkets and et cetera, like former journalists are people who now are elsewhere in the industry. Like they're at Blizzard or they're at Ubisoft or they're yeah. at, uh, you know, uh, Insomniac making Spider-Man. And oh. <laughs> it's just like, that's crazy. And uh, when I worked at Adult Swim, um, our PlayStation rep was a guy who used to do PR for Crystal Dynamics. And okay. I known him for like 20 years. So it's <laughs> it was awesome. great. It's like you think of the gaming industry as this huge entity with so many people, and then you get into it. And if you at least st stick around a while, you realize like everybody kind of knows everybody. And <laughs> definitely. <laughs> it's, it's uh, there it's, I don't want to say click cause that puts off the wrong connotation. Right. But it's definitely has that feel of like a big family. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Very cool. So one of the things I like to talk about, often on the show. And I, I think, again, you can provide great perspective on is um, the state of kind of uh, industry coverage today uh, and today. And it's obviously very, very different from what we were just talking through. Yeah. Um, you know, and as someone who now runs a site and a channel, you know, I'm kind of part of that. But I, you know, I like mm -hmm. to think I bring a little of that kind of older flavor. Um but one of the things I often feel, and I, I will promise not to go on a rant here for the audience because they've heard it too many times, is that the, uh, you know, I, I believe that a lot of the coverage we see today that escalates in terms of viewership and stuff is done from a con controversial standpoint yeah. or a, you know, I, I, the word clickbait is thrown around all the time. But, you know, things that kind of drive your attention with headlines. Right. And it's not just gaming. You see it in industries across the world and everything. Um but I, I want to get your thoughts on that. I mean, is, you know, some people challenge that a little bit, but I think overwhelmingly there's kind of this agreement that, um, you know, sadly controversy, uh, you know, whatever, however you want to word it kind of drives a lot of that today. And, and do you feel that, sure. do you see that? And, and do you agree that, um, you know, that's kind of happening or what's your overall thoughts on what you see today and how gaming industry is covered versus, you know, how it either how it used to be or how you think it should be done. Uh, I definitely agree that a lot of gaming coverage has sort of swayed towards clickbaity negativity. Negativity, uh, yeah, as well. Yeah. Especially on places like YouTube. Like, there yes. are so many videos yes. that are like, why this thing sucks, or here's why <laughs> gamers hate this, or like people who their whole shtick on YouTube is being negative. Yeah. And why this is terrible. Exactly. Yeah. Like why you shouldn't buy this yep. or a thing you like sucks. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I usually don't call it. Well, I sometimes call names, but you know, I saw, I, I click on, obviously I'm on YouTube and, uh, yep. I mean, it's, as season gaming's on YouTube, but you know, I, I, as many people, I watch it every day. And I, gaming came up on my feed yesterday, and I had a gamer ranks video there. I don't know why I never watched their stuff, but you yeah. know, it, it was you know why this, why you shouldn't buy this or something. And, and you know, it's two million views, and I'm just like, come yeah. on, man! Like it just it drives <laughs> you crazy. It definitely does. And I mean, I think I read a lot less uh gaming coverage now than i used to at least like okay. professional gaming coverage like i often will follow a lot of gaming twitter and generally people who are more positive about things or sure. 
that are covering the industry from the industry perspective rather than uh, a negative viewpoint. Uh, And I listen to a lot of podcasts that are also like very positive leaning and subscribe to YouTube channels that are more positive just because it's video games. It's supposed to be fun. Exactly. We're supposed to be celebrating the content. Like I don't really care about system wars. I don't really care about, you know, specs or graphics or anything like that. I want to know if a game is good, why somebody likes it, like why it's good, what it's doing to push the envelope in terms of gameplay or whatever. Like I uh, don't want to get bogged down in negativity. So, uh, and that was also kind of my stance when I worked at EGM. It's like, I want to, cover this from the perspective of a gamer. Like I used to read EGM and game pro and like, I used to love how they covered games. And I always thought about it from the fan perspective. Like what would I want to read about uh, reading an issue of EGM or, you know, what questions would I ask um, Dennis Dyack after eternal darkness came out, you know, like, and um you know, that was that was a lot of like how I approached coverage or how I approached reviews. And because it, it's hard to be negative about games so much, like there's so much to like. And especially now, I feel like we are in sort of a weird golden age of games where there's something for everybody and there's a community for everybody to participate in. Correct. And like, why like waste time being negative? There's just I got no time for that. So no. I uh, I think you know I come 100% agree, and in fact, it's funny you actually said golden age of gaming because I literally wrote an article 18 uh, a couple years ago now called the gold we're entering the golden age of gaming for that yeah. exact reason is that no matter the platform, no matter what kind of game you like, the genre, no matter how niche it is, there's a community for it, and there's games Absolutely. in it, yeah. um, which is amazing. I mean, it's something we should be celebrating. Yeah. Also, no matter your budget or that too whether you're on the hottest, newest platform or not, like whether it's a hand-me-down Xbox One from 2013, like you can get on and play some of the best games, some of the games that people are, you know, talking about the the most. So like I I really feel like we're in an amazing time for games. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, And it it is kind of sad in that sense that, I don't know. I don't know the mentality that drives it. If I if I could figure it out, you know, we we do something about it properly. But um, no, I, I'm with you. And and what I was going to ask too is, do you feel that because we mentioned YouTube uh, and Twitter, and you know, we're on there all the time, right? And I this instant kind of access and quick hit, yeah. uh, you know, on on info is is good in a lot of ways. You know, a publisher or developer can tweet out something it rapidly spreads and everyone hey has the update on where this game is right mm-hmm. um that's a good aspect of it um but at the same time my feeling is that the advent of that uh and the growth of things like youtube and as you likely know you know there there's even mandates from some of these publishers and um coverage companies for their staff where videos have to be a certain length you know sure. don't make the video more than five minutes or six minutes. Cause it's not yeah. going to get watched. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's really detracted from the overall 
uh, conversation or, um, you know, narrative that uh, discourse would probably be a better word that people like you used to have about games. Uh, I I think it's really kind of uh, there's no depth to the discourse that happens anymore. It's it's very surface level, either just this looks great or this is trash and move on, you know, and and it's just it's very disappointing to me. I I don't know Mm. if you agree with that, if you think YouTube and Twitter and the other kind of social media aspects have had that impact. Um, I think you have to find the depth now, like harder to find. Maybe it's harder to find. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Because, you know, there are games like Sea of Thieves. <laughs> I'll bring that back into sure. the conversation where that game did not launch with critical acclaim. Right. And it certainly did not launch with like great word of mouth either. Yes. But the people who liked it, which included myself, you know, found a community of people who also liked to play it. And yeah you know, we got in depth on the gameplay of that game, like within our own sort of micro community. So I think those conversations are happening. They're just happening in a different place because, you know, like a mainstream site can't necessarily have a full-time editor devoted to destiny or devoted to Fortnite or whatever. Like, I don't think they can exactly cover that beat, but there is a community that will, you just have to sort of find that niche and, you know, there's going to be a site or a discord server or somewhere where you can get that talk. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. It's tough, but there are a lot of, like, I agree with you that a lot of the press is, like, very surface level, um, and that's unfortunate, but also, like, it really is, like, a very clickbait business now, like, where people don't even read the the story past the headline anymore, and that that makes me sad. Yes. (laughs) Oh, there's someone who runs the site. Yes, it makes me very sad. (laughs) I'll see news stories put out that it's like, come on, like, don't, like, why are you reporting? Like, if you're a games journalist that's been around any length of time, you know, you know, whatever this thing is, this hypothetical thing that I'm talking about isn't true. Like, why are you devoting time to it? And it's because that's where the conversation or the surface level conversation is on. Oh my God, Nintendo didn't add Earthbound again to its uh, Nintendo Switch Online offerings. We've we got to like get on that train and be like, oh, aren't they yeah. bad people for this? But, you know, why? <laughs> what are yeah. you adding through that headline necessarily? Like, <laughs> yeah. And have you asked Nintendo if you can interview the people in charge of Nintendo Switch Online's uh, lineup and like why they make those decisions? I don't know. Like, it's just, it's a strange it's strange to see such surface level stuff happening where nobody's asking other deeper questions sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And it, it's all about, uh, you know, I've talked about this many times, but it's all about ROI, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it, you have a, a staff, depending on how big your organization is, of course, uh, the ROI, uh, again, for those listening, if you don't know that's return on investment, right. Is of a, Fortnite article talking about the new skin, the yeah. new Batman skin, may get a million clicks. Whereas, you know, an interview with uh, a lead designer on an indie game—I don't know—I'm making something up here—may get a couple thousand. Yeah, um, and you can make the 
that takes organization and, you know, maybe a couple hours of work. Um, whereas the Fortnite article may take you three minutes. Yeah. And if you're working on a quota where you have to get X number of pieces done a day or whatever, you're not going to do that deeper, deeper dive, unfortunately. But also, I think like going back to the Earthbound on Nintendo Switch Online example, nobody wants to know why it's not there. They're just angry that it's not there. And they want to read a headline that says it's <laughs> not true. there. Yeah. Them, right? <laughs> you can't handle the truth type thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or they just don't want to know. They yeah. want to know the negative thing, and that's it. They want to be angry that it's not there. They don't really, yeah. they don't really care the reason. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what, the same sort of reaction I think people have to game reviews on some anticipated title before they come out. It's like I'm in. I'm really looking forward to Ratchet and Clank, and yeah. if the game gets a two out of five from somebody, I, you know, I would be surprised. I'd probably read that, but for other people. They want the sort of confirmation bias. They want somebody yeah. to tell them that their decisions and their opinions are the correct ones. And yeah. it's a hard thing to to realize that that's, that's not real life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and sometimes people are going to have other opinions. Like I know a lot of people are searching for that objective review of a game. And an objective review of the game is basically a feature bullet list. Like, <laughs> like you can't really tell a lot. Like, reviews are going to be subjective no matter what. Like, a good review is just going to be that way. And maybe yeah. you'll agree with it. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll find interesting points in a review that you don't agree with. Uh, maybe you'll find points that you do agree with. Even if you really like a game, you could read a negative review and find something that... Uh, you also agree with who knows it's funny you bring up reviews because i've actually had this conversation recently because i reviewed uh returnal mm -hmm. for the playstation 5 and then reviewed resident evil village um which reviewed well um and now i'm reviewing biomutant which i can't speak about yet but i'm very anxious to um but going back to returnal uh is exactly what you were saying, right? You you have the people because it's a PlayStation 5 exclusive, it's $70, etc., that are just searching for those reviews that are calling out uh, negativity. And we saw yeah. one from a, a, you know, I don't really want to name names, but there's a pretty prominent person in the gaming community right now who reviewed it and gave it a six, which in today's industry is, you know, that game's garbage, as you well know, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it just took over the conversation. And it's, in, again, incredibly disappointing that that's the, uh, the level of discourse that, that occurs at that moment. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it took over the conversation before the game was even out. And right. anybody else had played it or been able to, like, really say they agree or disagree with that stance. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I So I was a game reviewer for a long time as part of EGM's review crew up until 2004. Okay. And I loved that job i would not want to be a game reviewer now for that reason really like i don't think i would want the scrutiny <laughs> of you know because reviewing a game is a tough proposition right because especially not that the not a, sorry cj not to interrupt you but it's yeah. It's a tough proposition, even more so when you are in a job for an outlet mm -hmm. uh, today where you may get a code that a couple days before the um, exactly. embargo, yeah. you have a couple days to do it. You're mandated to have it ready by the embargo. 
And you know that because of the publication you work for, there's going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of eyes on it. Right. So, yeah. So I didn't want to interrupt you. I was just the, the, the way in which those are provided today for some people in that job is very tough. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And he, I even back in the magazine days, it was pretty similar, actually, because we had monthly deadlines. And uh, if we got a game like a day before the magazine went out, well, we kind of have to have to do it because we have like a month lead time. So you had to like spend a lot of time reviewing a game or um, a lot of hours in the office taking screenshots or whatever <laughs> it is like because you had to get get it in that issue so that it co- could come out before the game was out. Yeah. Same exact problem. It's just Same a different problem. era. Different yeah. era. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I don't uh, envy game reviewers today <laughs> at all, but I'm glad that they're, I'm glad that, you know, a lot of them stick to their guns and, uh, you know, hopefully people will begin to accept that. I hope that people start looking at the text more than just the number, but I understand <laughs> why it's human nature, right? Like we look at that number first. Yep. Yep. So, um, yeah. So a couple points on that. And I certainly don't want to, uh, talk about season gaming for more than a minute here, but, Part I've struggled a lot with how we do reviews for that mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I've always mandated for the group is that uh, we don't review games until one, we finish them. So okay. we don't, we don't worry about embargoes, right? If the embargo is up and um, the game review is not done, oh, well, you know, it'll come out when it comes out, but we have the benefit of that because I, I, the site's a nonprofit site. We're not right. doing it for clicks. Whereas people working for companies, that obviously have all the things we've talked about. They don't have that benefit. That's um, true. And I got to say, that's a very noble effort to like <laughs> review things only yeah. after you've finished them. Because uh, I mean, I've heard so many people saying like, why don't you finish this game before you review it? And I just think about it. And it's like, if you don't like a game, you know, you can know pretty quickly whether this game is going to be for you or not, like uh, pretty soon after you start playing. So to me, you don't have to finish it to form an opinion. I do think if you're doing like an overall uh, complete review, like if that's the, if that's the thing that the site does, then yes, absolutely. But I don't think it's necessary to do that in general because a consumer would not give a game the entire length of the game before making up their own minds. Yeah, right. Like if I buy a game and I have buyer's remorse and thinks it, think it totally sucks. I'm not going to like play all the way through all 40, 80 hours or whatever before returning it to the store or selling it. Right. Yeah. So uh, I kind of look at it from that angle. Yeah. It depends on what your responsibility level is. Right. Um, Yeah. I see, I see publishing a review as a responsibility. So, um, yeah. but again, like I said, we have the benefit of doing that. And, and the other Completely thing you commented not. on, which is for, it's funny is the score, right? And mm. we used to not do scores for that exact reason. It's like, look, if you want to know our opinion on a game, you need to understand it, not just the number. Cause there's a lot yeah. of context that gets missed. Um, I agree. the problem is, is that if you want to be published on any kind of aggregate site, including Metacritic and OpenCritic, you have to mm-hmm. have a score. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's you know it's always like a vicious circle with these types of things for coverage. Yeah. 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 Stuff. I agree. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, let's uh, let's get back to uh, the the industry from a game perspective. Um, yeah. So forget about the coverage aspect. But, you know, you kind of mentioned the golden age of gaming. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think we're, we're living that. And I honestly think it's only going to get better over the next few years, uh, at least um, because of connectivity and the, the investment that's going into development and everything. I mean, one thing mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about is this this notion or this belief um, that uh, games nowadays tend to launch more kind of broken or needing work than they used to. Yeah. Um, And I I think it's a big conversation. So, you know, there's a lot of different aspects we can talk about here, but and we don't have to get into all of them. But um, from my viewpoint, there is, you know, when we were growing up and you had a cartridge, once the cartridge shipped, that, w- that was it. You know, there's no update. There's no internet or downloads or anything else. Yeah. Um, but the games were also far, far simpler. I mean, exponentially mm-hmm. so. Um, and there were far fewer of them, too. That's true, right? And and even if things were broken, who was going to hear about it? It was you telling your friends. You know, <laughs> there's yeah. no, there's no one making YouTube videos saying your game's broken, you know, <laughs> right. and, and you're, you're odd, you know, nobody talked with developers or had any kind of interaction with them. Yeah. Um, so it's just a different environment today. And I, I think given all those different things, it's, it's funny to hear people say, well, every game launch is broken. And it's like, oh, that's not, that's not really strictly true. Um, I think that does a disservice to developers in general, right. And publishers, yeah. but um, you know, what do you personally uh, kind of prefer gaming now than it did growing up despite the nostalgia? I mean, you kind of said we're in the golden age of gaming. I mean, do you personally feel like right now as you play games on a daily basis that you would take this era over any other era that we've lived through? Absolutely. Okay. Unquestionably, because <laughs> here's, here's the way I think about it is like back in the day, if I had a game that I really liked that was going to get updated every month with new content or something new, even if I had to buy that thing for like $5, $10 extra, but right. I really liked that game, I would have been beside myself. It would have been great. <laughs> like if you told me that, you know, Super Mario Brothers 2 was going to get updated with new levels, I'd be like, this is fantastic. You know, right. like so or Mario Maker 2 where people you can play I mean, levels that other people create, right? Exactly. Like yeah. if you if I had the that sort of experience when I was younger, I would have been all about it. It would have been a paradise, like completely. <laughs> like games getting updated subscription-based stuff like xbox game pass or ps now or so so many games are so accessible or free-to-play games where i don't even have to pay anything to enjoy them like it would just be a paradise like (laughs) like i you know i have great nostalgia for growing up in the 80s and 90s and playing those games but i have more excitement for games now because you know i bought sea of thieves in 2018 and haven't stopped playing that game and it's 2021 like (laughs) that's unheard of like never happened to me in my life where a game has come out that i've played for literal years right so (laughs) i uh and i think a lot of people have found that game whether it's apex legends or fortnite or destiny or whatever like you can find that game and I would, it, I mean, growing up, it would have been amazing if that was the case. No doubt. I think, 
you know, e- even the games like the what were considered the kind of games either you did couch co-op on or the big RPGs at the time, which we played over and over again for long periods of time when Final Fantasy got big or Shining and, you know, Shining Force and those things. Yeah. We, we only really played those endlessly because options were so few at the time. That's you right. Know? And you got one game a, a year, or like <laughs> right. one game for your birthday, and that was all you were going to get. Yeah, it's like I played Ghouls and Ghosts every day for, for months, but it's because I had nothing else to play. And, and you yeah. know, it just is what it is. Um, whereas today there's so many options and to your point, a game like destiny, you mentioned them all, right. And they're just getting new content all the time. Yeah. And you know, it's just, it, it is always funny to me and I know value is subjective and I, I don't, uh, judge anyone on what they determine the value is to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is crazy to think that you have these games like the apex, the Fortnite, the sea of thieves, all these, right. Where you can jump in for basically free yeah, and you can play for hundreds or thousands of hours without mm-hmm. ever paying a dime um it's just if you would have told us that when we were kids you said there's no yeah it doesn't even make sense there's no way right. that's gonna ever happen it's a paradise it's like a free play <laughs> arcade man right. like, oh guess what if you don't like that game there's a hundred more over here you can go play you know exactly it's like, exactly a thousand more um <laughs> So uh, earlier I said, let's put a pin in that. And it's been an hour. So now we'll, we'll come back to it. Okay. But you, you talked about uh, user experience. And so I was yeah. just talking about uh, games releasing, some games being buggy and you yep. know all the things we discuss. Um, but what we often see, and I, I hate to bring up cyberpunk because it's been talked about to death, right? Uh, as I sit on my cyberpunk chair. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's become the poster child for this conversation. Um you know, the, the sad thing is, uh, it feels like, is that often the developers themselves, the people putting in the work and coding and all these other things, they get the brunt of this when a game does release poorly and yeah. it gets critical feedback and they're, you know, crunching, for lack of a better word, again, to get and get things fixed. Uh, it's not a lot of the times it's not really on them. Um and it, it feels like you have a probably a unique perspective or insight or any thoughts you want to offer on that, right? Because there are uh, groups internally, um, you know, even in my line of work, we call it QA and UAT, you know, user end testing or acceptance testing and yeah. quality assurance and all these other departments that are kind of trying to replicate what a user, what a player is going to experience when the game launches, right? Um do you think that is how one how challenging is that i would say for for the groups involved and just from your personal experience not talking about any specific company just your own thoughts on you know how maybe the industry could approach that better or or do they and there's just kind of unique cases where executive level decisions are made which end up with these scenarios like cyberpunk or, you know, just your whole thoughts on kind of that process of how a game gets sure. formalized and finalized to ship in a good state. Yeah, and I can talk about it, you know, from the perspective of having worked at Adult Swim Games for 11 years and released many games with them. Um, and uh, I would say, you know, I understand from the executive level why a game needs to come out at a certain time, especially with some of these public companies, they have to answer to their stockholders, et cetera. Like I understand that. And big AAA games are a very large effort 
right? Thousands of people involved in making these and testing them and making sure that they all work and they're on multiple platforms. And if you look at it from the basis of this is a project that has to go to six different platforms and all release on the same day and run in the same way or, and we want to do development right up to the last point that we can, because we're always polishing, we're always fixing. Um, to me, it seems like this is just going to be something we're going to have to learn to live with because you can't, you can't necessarily plan for every single outcome of larger sure. games, right? Yeah. Uh, I released a lot of games on mobile when I worked at Adult Swim. And sometimes you can't tell what's going to happen when somebody who's using an iPhone 3GS gets your game and they have a jailbroken OS or whatever, <laughs> and they, they're running your game and they have a bad experience and then you're on the hook for it but you didn't know that people were going to be doing that. You touched so, on something very specific there that I think people <laughs> don't think about. And is what you're saying, right? There's, there are groups who run all these test cases and they yeah. use different hardware and they go through different experiences, but there are so many possible scenarios yeah. uh, that users can kind of endure, especially like you said, if you're on mobile, you're on PC, yeah. Uh, there's a million different combinations of CPUs and GPUs and memory and all these different things, programs yeah. too, like mm -hmm, you said, mm -hmm. uh, that can impact the game running. Um, and it's just, it's impossible for a dev and a testing team to uh, thoroughly test each of those. Yeah. So I, what I think is that we're just, this is going to unfortunately or fortunately be how things go going forward i think we as players and consumers of this stuff have to take a step back and understand that these are products made by people and you know there are a lot of people who are like against crunch but then also want the games <laughs> to be perfect when they come yeah. out and you kind of can't have both of those things so which not do you unless want? you have unlimited money and time which nobody has <laughs> that's right yeah. like i i just think that we're past the point where you know the what the final game will be 15 years from now ships on the disc when the release date happens like that's just not gonna be a thing it doesn't matter if you're making an indie game or you're making a triple a game i don't think that's just gonna be that's not the future of games the future of games is being able to update things and being able to fix use cases that you couldn't come up with in testing or yeah. Like in an open world game like Assassin's Creed or something like that, you don't know like the order that people are going to do things in. Yeah, right. You just can't necessarily test for every single outcome. Yep. It's just an unfortunate reality. So like I, I sympathize with the developers and the QA people and even to some extent the executives that have to make the decision to, you know, push the thing out the door. Uh, it's a tough decision and you know i've been on i launched a game on mobile where we had an update that deleted everybody's progress Oof. and that killed that game dead in one day dead so wow. uh <laughs> i have some experience with that sort of backlash now that was a long time that 
long time ago, 2013 or so. But uh, <laughs> I so have you know a lot what of some sympathy. of these returnal devs are feeling right now because I, that that was happening. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Just as a consumer, yeah. like these are projects and people are behind them, and yeah. they can't. They just can't. You can't plan for every scenario, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and and people think it's like, oh, you're a developer at this studio, so you're responsible. It's like they don't have a concept of. Uh, you know, how those things work or that it's a normal company with very different departments and many departments yeah. and people um, that all have kind of this chain, if you will, to make something successful and work properly. And, and it's it's always interesting to me because it's really no different. Well, it, it's different in in what they're doing, but no different in concept to any other company, right? Like say you work in a warehouse um, and you, uh, you know, you stock shelves, Um but then someone gets the wrong box at their house. It's not your fault, right. but, but you know the you know it seems like the pitchforks come out for anyone working at a developer, <laughs> and it's like uh, you know that guy had nothing to do with whatever you're talking about. Um, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It's I mean, I think it's something consumers don't know about, don't need to know about, honestly. But uh, I think if developers and publishers respond in a you know, understanding way, because, you know, obviously your consumer has spent the money to buy your product. Correct. They expect a certain thing and that's totally within their right, you know, yep. but if something is broken, you have to explain why and also get on a fix as soon as you can and try to, you know, try to make it better as soon as possible. You know, uh, looking back at Sea of Thieves, once again, uh, they had server problems in the first couple weeks of that game's release. Nobody really remembers it now, but yeah. uh, there's some funny videos of <laughs> the executive producer and studio head of Rare, like just, you can tell they hadn't slept in <laughs> days, <laughs> you know, in front of a whiteboard, like telling what their plan is to fix the login error in that game. It's just yeah. like, you can, sometimes you can't plan for that in especially in multiplayer games where like a lot of those have server issues on opening weekend yeah outriders being a great perfect uh outriders example. you yeah. can't plan for that stuff though you can simulate traffic Correct. but when you're beta testing something or like um you know for adult swim we did a game called pocket mortys and uh it's sort of a multiplayer there's a multiplayer update to it where people could connect and play and you try to simulate it, but when actual people get on, it's totally different because they're logging on at different times and choosing different options or backing out of menus in a very erratic way that you can't do via like a simulation of that. Mm. It's just not the same. So um, I have total sympathy for the server engineers that have uh, that launched these sort of multiplayer games. It's horrifying to me. Um as someone who uh, I work in application development, I launch customer facing applications for our company. And, you mm -hmm. know, it's always a nervous thing when uh, something is going live and uh, you don't know what to expect. And there are, as you just said, there's things that come up that you never expect. That's right. Always. You can plan uh, for it as much as you want. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think, I think, as you said, uh, I just, uh, you know, you like to hope and I don't know if it is going to change, but it, it's it really comes down to community knowledge on these things. And that's why I like to talk about it. Right. I like to kind of uh, bring perspectives like yourself, uh, like people like yourself give so that people can understand. Look, yes, I know the game you've been waiting for launch. Yes, I know you're having issues with it, but, um, you know, just be patient and, and realize yeah. that one, there's hundreds or thousands of other games you could be playing in today's market. Um, and you know, the game, 
it's there's probably uh, worthwhile aspects to the game, even if some things aren't perfect, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the other things I really struggle with is when a game launches and it's a massive game and it has all these amazing things in it, but you know people will point to one or two things that either don't look right or don't work right and et cetera, and it's like ah, oh, the game's broken, and it's like well, you know, zero point. <laughs> zero two percent of it is broken but the other 99.8 percent is awesome you know um, yeah yeah that that really gets to me because again those experiences that a lot of these modern games offer are far beyond what we've ever had completely um, yeah. yeah i remember um friday the 13th the game launched on playstation and pc I remember and yeah this is a game that i really like and okay. uh i watched a bunch of streams of it like decided you know, screw the reviews, which were low. Uh, yes. I'm going to buy this game and and play it. And uh, I had a ton of fun with it. Loved it. And it had server issues. Yeah, definitely. Like you had to wait a long time to get in a lobby. But then once you were in a lobby, the game was super fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I remember all the uh, jokes about what was it? Chad, his face and the, the facial animations and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I still love that game. (laughs) (laughs) I had a friend who played that game a lot. He really enjoyed it. Um, And it's a shame because it's another instance where they they tried to do their best. Right. And and they updated it and stuff. And it just it, you know, the tail just wasn't there for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, is what it is. Um, It's true. So what's uh, you know, you just started this new career uh, or not a new career, excuse me new role uh, with Enhance. And uh, I'm sure, obviously, like you said, you can't talk too specifically about that. But, um, you know, where do you think, What would, let me phrase it this way. What would you like to see personally out of gaming in the coming years? Let's say the next five to 10 years. Are you on board with this uh, methodology primarily being pushed by uh, Xbox in the console space of kind of play the games you own anywhere regardless of platform right like if you're on your mobile phone you can connect to your that ecosystem and play um potentially things like game pass and xbox ecosystem landing on other hardware right in the future um as this kind of connectivity and kind of all-encompassing access to games in the future i mean where do you stand on that are you are you is that something you're excited about you don't really care or um you know are you kind of still in the nostalgic uh, I love my consoles. I love my specific games. I love my platforms type thing. Uh, yeah, it's interesting for somebody like myself who grew up like being all about consoles. I really don't think about it anymore about where I'm going to play something. Um, I'm much more focused on what the content is yeah. personally. And uh, I feel like stuff like game pass stuff like x cloud stuff like stadia even like is super exciting Mm -hmm. uh to be able to like you know pick up a game on any device play a little bit and then like hop on a flight fly somewhere else pick up my phone and continue that exact same game on the road you know that's something that we were never able to do before unless you're playing something on a specifically portable system yeah and that's one of the things that i love about the switch and i think that is going to be something that i love about cloud gaming i don't quite think we're there yet in terms of replicating the experience exactly but 
it is going to get there and it is going to be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like it's there already. Like if you're an iPhone user and you play games on Apple Arcade, you can go from device to device. Like I can play something on Apple Arcade and then switch to my iPad and continue right from where I left off. And yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. And once console gaming kind of gets to that point, and it, it is there if you have like two Xbox consoles in your house, like you can do that. You can pick it up, like go from the living room to the bedroom or whatever and continue playing. Uh, and that's fantastic too. <laughs> but like when you get to also bring that experience with you to, you know, the doctor's office or getting an oil change or something like that. And you just want to play something real quick. Like that is where it starts to get super interesting Yeah, for me. And it's going to get, it's going to get good. Like I know there's a lot of lag issues and stuff. We're sort It'll of in, there. in the It'll beginning of that, but it's going to, it's going to get so good. <laughs> well, <I> tell, <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, I, I think I quoted this on one of the other episodes, but I, I spoke to Albert Pinello briefly about this, or he, or he gave a quote. Uh, and if listeners don't know who he is, he was a director of hardware engineering at Xbox for a time. He's with mm-hmm. Amazon now on Luna. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he made a statement uh, of something to the effect of just because it doesn't work today doesn't mean it's not going to work. Exactly. Um, and it's, it's the same, you know, as many other uh, technologies in that vein. And, and what I tell people, you know, the the easiest way I ref, I refer people when they can't kind of wrap their mind around this thinking because they're stuck in the, you need a, a home device and a TV, you know, to play these things is just, again, always look at the other industries that have gone this way, whether it be music or movies, right? It's like mm-hmm. when you watch Netflix, you can watch on your TV. Um, and then if you want to go, as you just said, you've got to go to an appointment, you pull Netflix up on your phone, you log yep. into your account, you're in the exact same spot uh, yep. because it's all server driven and all you're doing is authenticating to the actual ecosystem. Um, people just need to get in their heads that that's where gaming is going. Yeah. Um, and it's just Microsoft because of being Microsoft uh, and, and actually having a vision for this, uh, thanks to some of their leadership. Um, they just happen to be the ones that are kind of moving that direction first in the console space. It's interesting, though, like I think... Microsoft is doing it because they've been forced to. And the reason I say that is uh, just looking at it from a fan's perspective, like they were so down for the count after 2013. Yeah. Like they had nothing. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it was then that they realized they can't compete at the same where where Sony was going, they couldn't go also, they couldn't try the exact same strategy against Sony. You can't really beat them at their own game. You can't beat Nintendo at Nintendo's own game either. And that may be uniquely uh, unique about the video game business. But, um, you know, when they introduce things like play anywhere, uh, where you could play an Xbox game on the console and then play the exact same game on PC or take your save or play against somebody on a console from the PC. Like when they announced that at first, I didn't understand that. Like I was like, I, my mindset was how are you going to sell consoles, uh, making PC versions of your games? Yeah. And that was the wrong thought, (laughs) (laughs) but but we saw that from, 
a lot of, I mean, a lot of people were asking that question, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I understand it, but yeah. we didn't see the rest of the strategy. And I almost wonder like how, I wonder how that strategy developed because my, it was clear Microsoft had to do something different. Yeah. And they f- started focusing on backwards compatibility, which I think we're seeing the dividends of that yes, right now in spades. And then you've got Play Anywhere, which I, again, cross-play, huge, huge advancement in video games just in general. And then, uh, you know, Game Pass on top of that. Like, you see all of these things start to stack, and they're... Xbox's business approach is very different from that of PlayStation, very different from that of Nintendo, but they've sort of started to carve out their own unique market out of this thing that I wouldn't necessarily just have thought they'd be able to do from looking at it from a fan's perspective back in 2014-15. I mean, we, we'd never seen it before, right? I no. mean, we, we're, we're living through decades of a certain type of behavior, and to your point about you know, I know we always talk about Xbox, PlayStation because they're kind of, you know, that they're the ones in that space primarily. Nintendo's a little over here, um, yeah. and very successful at being over here. Um, <laughs> but PlayStation's brand, to your point, right in 2013, Xbox had come off their best generation in the 360, yeah. and and that was the first time I think that um, Sony had kind of gotten punched a little bit, uh, you know, in the in the mouth, but. Um, what we what we found out over these next few years, despite Xbox's stumbles and the well documented, we've talked about many times, um, is that the, the PlayStation global brand, their global install base, and the markets that they're in, Xbox isn't all the, isn't in all of those, right? So to your yeah. point, they had to adjust, and I don't know where it came from. A lot of people credit Phil Spencer, of course, and I think he does deserve a lot of credit. Mm-hmm, um, absolutely. But I, but I don't know if it's his idea alone. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other people talking about this direction, right, and where they should go. But I, I don't know. Personally, I have to think that, as I just kind of referenced, right, they looked at where music went, they looked at where movies went, and they thought this is where games need to go. It's yeah. a natural evolution, right, due to technology. Um, I asked someone recently, you still hear people talk about physical versus digital. I asked Joe, actually. Hmm. And I said, Joe, when's the last time you bought a music album digitally? And he said, I, I don't know. I said, yeah, because you just listen to it on Spotify or sure. Amazon or, you know, wherever you happen to listen to it. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what we're seeing happen with Game Passes. It's, it's you true. know, it, it's not there yet where all the content is there. I don't know if it'll ever be the same, but the the methodology is the same. Yeah, completely. And I uh, went all digital in 2010. I started wow. buying. Okay digital games on ps3 and xbox 360 okay. and uh and 3ds and i've never looked back like it's been great like i know i have absolutely no regrets i don't have shelves of games anymore and i'm fine with that because like i was saying earlier like games aren't complete products in a box anymore yeah not like they used to be yeah not like they used to be and they're ever changing ever evolving and uh that's both, I mean, there are pros and cons to that, for sure. But the convenience of being able to like um, boot up the PS5 or the Xbox Series X and just jump into a game that I have on the hard drive without having to get up and like switch discs or anything, or like it—it's—it's it's huge. That convenience factor for me trumps owning a physical disc, which 
doesn't really give you much in the year 2021. No, it's basically a key. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's a license, right? Um, So it's very similar. Yeah, it's uh, even as a physical collector as I am. I mean, that's just the facts. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it is what it is. I mean, in fact, there's been games I've bought that uh, not only have the day one update, which, you know, if you have a disc, you have a build from like a month or two ago, right? And then you have to get the rest of the game. Um, But there's other ones where it's literally a key. You know, I've put in games where it's like 100 megabits um, and then it just downloads the whole game. That's right. Um, Yeah. So it's (laughs) which drives me crazy Uh, as an old school guy. But that is what it is. But yeah, yeah, that's um, I'm in a pretty similar space with you going back to the conversation about where the industry is going and, you know, the technology that drives it. And I think, you know, I think people some people are struggling with the idea, the concepts, the change, all those other things that come with kind of that natural evolution. But Mm. I do believe, you know, firmly staunchly that within the next you know five years or so um there will be this that ecosystem where you know i'm playing my xbox games wherever i am at any time on any device uh and when i you know i travel for work i used to bring my xbox one x with me i carry it through the airport in my backpack and um those days are those days are long gone uh well they're they're going but they will going away yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people like to bag on Stadia, and may, maybe as a platform, I can under, understand it. But in terms of what they were trying to do, yeah, and they they bungled a lot of things. But like yeah, in terms of what they were trying to ideas do, ideas were good. It was the, the leadership ideas, that failed them. The ideas were good. I think <laughs> the timeline to launch it was bad. Like yeah. they, but they have like a really interesting technology there that people are going to be playing games that way, whether it's called Stadia or not. Like, yep. You know, I mean, I loved the Wii U back when that was back when that came out. <laughs> like I'm a huge supporter of the Wii U. People hated that machine for very unimportant reasons. <laughs> like, <laughs> it has some of the best games like the Splatoon, Pikmin 3, like... Uh, Most of the best-selling Switch games are Wii U games. Exactly, Mario Kart 8, yeah, exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah, people like, forget that Breath of the Wild is a Wii U game. It's not a exactly. Switch game, it's a port. That's, that's absolutely right. <laughs> and, like, that console had such great content, people just didn't want to deal with the console as it was delivered or marketed. And I kind yeah. of see Stadia as in this sort of similar place where, yeah... Marketing got bungled. Some of the moves are bad, but you know this is where the industry is going. I don't think anybody doubts that. So why are we bagging on Stadia all the yeah. time? Like <laughs> it's more of a whipping know. boy mentality. It's a pile on, right? And, and I've been guilty on. of it as well. I'll fully admit. Um, yeah. But I think not to make an excuse for it, but I think where uh, some of my poking comes from is because again, I'm, I'm in not with Google, obviously, but I, I'm in kind of that application development server stuff in my career. Yeah. And so seeing the potential for it and seeing how bad they've managed the the other aspects of it is frustrating. It's yeah. like you, 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 you're Google. You guys own the search engine in the world and YouTube yeah. and have the technology to play games remotely, the best technology today to yeah. do so, and you can't figure out how to make this work. Like, what are you doing? So here's what the here's what the problem is. They want to go into games and they want to be successful yesterday. 
exactly. that's just not how, not how video works. games work. It's a very content-driven industry. Yep. You have to have the great, you can have all the great technology money can buy, whatever. Doesn't matter if you don't have that great content. And for some people, it's exclusive content. For others, it's just availability of the catalog, what and whatnot. But yeah. it makes a big difference. And companies like Google and Amazon that kind of wade into video games, thinking they're going to become an Ubisoft or EA in the next fiscal year. I mean, yes, it's not realistic. Like, no. it just unfortunately, isn't. It's going to take a long time. It's going to cost a lot of money. You're going to have a lot of missteps. And you also have to stand by those missteps when they happen. Like, and I don't know that Amazon has exactly done that. (laughs) Like, well, Google uh, certainly hasn't done that with a number of things. Yeah. Hasn't done that either. And that's got to be frustrating for the people that work there because, you know, like we said, the technology is good. Like, they're just on a different corporate timeline, I think. But, you know, yeah. They're going to learn the hard way, maybe. Yeah, uh, and they are or have. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I do think, though, like PlayStation, the interesting thing about them is that, you know, they bought OnLive and they bought uh, what over that other cloud Gaikai, gaming. Gaikai. Gaikai. Yeah. yeah, Gaikai. Yep. Yeah, and they have PlayStation now, which a lot of people forget they have, but it's yep. like uh, PlayStation will probably do something in that space as well. Like, oh, they have to. I mean, why not? Like, <laughs> Yeah, they'd be silly not to if they see where things are going. Like even with their business model, they'll find a way to make it work. Um, You know, I don't think it's going to be very interesting going forward because I see like platform warring as a thing kind of of the past, or I want to think of it that way. It's probably not going to end up that way, but (laughs) (laughs) like, oh, we are not that lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Like if there's a future where I could pay my $15 a month for game pass and not even own an Xbox. That's an interesting future, right? Or pay $15 a month for a PlayStation service, you know, yeah. if that even happens, who knows? Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, yeah. I would like to have this sort of, you know, I think in the early 2010s or late odds, mm-hmm. people were talking about a one console future. Yeah. But what about a no console future? Right. Right. Like, is that possible? Like, and I think Dennis Dyack said that and got, got a lot of crap for that saying that, but visionaries usually do. It could, it could happen. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I think the problem at the time was the mentality was tying platform to console. Because that's the way it's always been. Exactly. Uh, But um, no, I, I, I would, I'll put it down right now. And I've said it before. I guarantee there is a time coming where you can play every Xbox game you play today or be in that ecosystem with new releases and everything else where you don't need a console. Absolutely. 100% is coming. Yeah. Because that's not where the money is. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's a red line, honestly. Agreed. Um, It's especially if you want investment, like uh, developing countries, where you can't ship consoles to as easily or they're too expensive. Right. Like if you were able to have a lower cost way to play some of those games, yep. I mean, that'd be huge. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's so many market factors where it makes sense. That's what, that's why I say, it. I guarantee it's coming. Cause at the end of the day, it's always about the bottom line. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just, it makes way too much sense. Wait, Plus, are you yeah, saying that video games are a business where people do <laughs> big hardware manufacturers do something because there's profit to be yeah, had? Like uh, <laughs> they don't deliver games for the goodness of their heart. Yeah. This isn't just an art form. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I, I love those conversations. Cause, um, it's just funny the some of the perceptions out there, you know, of how these things are done, or or what one of the one of the best ones, um, and I've actually heard some kind of executive level people joke about it is, you know, what people who are completely naive to how the industry works at all, but love to talk about video games, what they think is important mm. to a company, you know, and it's just it's so far they it's just there's such a gap there in what they think may be driving decision making, right? Um, it's it's hilarious to me yeah i mean i think a similar thing has happened with tv and movies right where uh especially now like a lot of content companies need content so they're yeah. like streaming services are funding projects that never in a million years would have happened ever before yeah. and i think uh that's kind of how video games work too like 100 percent you need especially as the industry grows right exactly like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, like i think so many people are like oh there are so many service games and huge triple a games like we'll never see any of x or y style of game again it's like but that hasn't happened yet like there's no. always going to be somebody ready to make a niche game like <laughs> yeah it's uh I think it was John Oliver who said something like a couple of years ago and just stated it, you know, it's kind of like opinions aren't facts. Right. But it's like mm -hmm. uh, people just because you believe something doesn't make it true. Right. And you yeah. do, you hear that. It's like, Oh, there's so many service games. We're not going to see these big single player narrative games anymore. It's like, that's, it's just not true. It just didn't happen. <laughs> no, we still, <laughs> it's because the industry, people don't realize the industry is so big now and it continues to grow double digits year over year globally. Mm -hmm. Um, it can support all of these things. And there's the the delivery mechanism um, is what's important in a way. And that's where Game Pass, we've heard a lot from creators and developers, is that there's freedom there, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the, what used to be spent on worried about budgeting and marketing and other things, uh, Game Pass at least alleviates some of that. The service model alleviates some of that. Um, right. And so it's just the way they, companies invest and, yeah, I mean, we were we were just saying earlier, there's more games now than ever. It's not like we've lost out on anything. Uh, we're just yeah. getting more of it. So very true. Yeah, it's that's <laughs> uh, a funny conversation. But <laughs> well, uh, CJ, man, it's been awesome talking with you. It really has. Um, I, I do this series, and I, I reach out to certain people because, um, as you, if you couldn't tell, I just love talking about video games and the industry and history and all that. And uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with someone like yourself who um, has, uh, you know, similar memories, um, but also unique perspectives thanks to uh, your your experience within the industry. So I, I thank you very, very much for agreeing to do this and sharing everything you've shared. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on, Ains. This was fun. Yeah. We'll have to uh, we'll definitely have to talk more. Um, Absolutely. Have to get you on uh, on our, our normal podcast as well to chat sometimes. So I'll keep in touch but um yeah we'll go ahead and uh and wrap this up for the evening unless there's anything specifically you wanted to say before getting out is there anything you'd like to shout out or um you know where can people find you or anything else you want to touch on sure uh well i'm on twitter 
My handle there is superpac, S-U-P-E-R-P-A-C. I got that handle in the mid-90s before it meant something completely different. <laughs> when it, back when it meant super Pac-Man. <laughs> yeah, that's not what people think nowadays. That is not what people think nowadays, <laughs> but I've had that handle since like the early 90s. Great. And uh, I'm also a host of the Player One Podcast. That's playeronepodcast.com or at P1 Podcast on Twitter. And then I'm also the editor-in-chief of secondplayer.net. That's a website. And then a Twitter account as well, secondplayer.net. And I highlight video game podcasts and YouTube videos there. So that's that's where you can find me. Yeah, you're keeping busy, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So as always... Thank you, everyone who listens and tunes into this. Uh, This has been Industry Perspectives with Chris Johnson, known as CJ. And uh, you can find all his information in the details below. And until then, we will see you next time. Peace. Bye-bye.